Hey everybody, welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. This is your host, Libertarian Tony. And I guess there's a bunch of different stuff I'm going to talk to you about tonight. Um, we're going to cover a lot of things from politics to the virus. But first of all, just want to say thank you for coming back and listening to the show. It's been a while since I've been able to release a podcast and I haven't really had time to hook up with Joey for a uh, co-hosted show. So I wanted to put something out there about my current thoughts on a lot of the things going on. Well, first of all, I, I want to say I, I braved the elements for you. I stared the coronavirus from China in the face and gave it a big middle finger. And I came to the office to do this podcast just for you guys. So I'm putting my life on the line here for the listeners, and I, I hope you really appreciate that. Okay, so first, let's, let's get started with some of the, I don't know if you call it recent, but uh, political news in the Democratic race. You have Tulsi Gabbard. Okay, well, what do we say about her? Well, as you know, she dropped out of the race. And she's looking more and more like a sellout and a typical politician than I would have expected several months ago. Dropping out of the race was inevitable, right? That was not a surprise. There was no chance that she was going to win. The big surprise came with her endorsement of Joe Biden. In 2016, she specifically chose not to endorse Hillary Clinton and instead endorsed Bernie Sanders. Why didn't she endorse Sanders again this time? Maybe there was pressure on her to support Biden over Sanders? But then what does that tell you about her integrity, right? It seems like she's just going to fold up her beliefs and support the popular nominee despite Joe Biden being one of the most warmongering people on the, I guess, on the, in the whole field, right? Certainly more than Bernie Sanders. Doesn't that tell you something about her character, that her biggest issue were these Middle East wars and that Bernie Sanders was basically against and Joe Biden was in favor of every single time? Does that tell you about her character as a person? I mean, she's flawed like everyone else is, right? Her principles can be compromised away for political reasons. Well, anyway, that's what it tells me. I knew she wasn't the great hope for the party, but I was hoping she could at least get the conversation going when it came to the wars. And she failed on that. She failed big time. And now in my eyes, she's a failed person as well. She failed to demonstrate the integrity that I expected of her, and now she looks like any old random politician who talks out of both sides of her mouth. That's what support for Biden looks like to me. She's basically voting for the war party despite all her anti-war rhetoric. She could have easily supported and endorsed Bernie Sanders, but chose not to. Maybe Joe Biden's team promised her something or the DNC promised her something. Maybe. But chances of getting support from independents, libertarians, conservatives who don't like Trump, and who are anti-war, chances of getting any of their support going forward, well, I think that's all out the window now. She had a chance to show some backbone, and she failed. 
It's disappointing, but it's not unexpected. Okay, and as many of you already know, we had a recent, I don't know if you want to call it recent anymore, but debate between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Okay, most of you probably did not watch the debate. It wasn't that exciting, let me tell you. And I'm not going to go through any play-by-play type stuff on the debate because it's just really not worth it, okay? I mean, the nominee is basically Biden, all right? If you look at every single poll right now has Biden in the lead, and Biden already has a 300-delegate count lead on Bernie Sanders, okay? I think Biden's at like 1,200, and Bernie Sanders is at like 900, okay? So, you know, put a nail in the coffin, it's over, it's going to be Biden. Unless Biden kicks the bucket or has a stroke or something before the, before the Democratic National Convention, I mean, it's going to be Biden. That, that's, that's the nominee, and uh, Bernie's out. I don't know what that's going to do politically for the November election. You know, do the Bernie Sanders supporters all go away, or do they suck it up and support Biden? It's, I mean, it's probably going to be a mix, right? I, I don't think you can count on all the Bernie bros and all the Bernie supporters just going over to Biden. I think a lot of them are just going to sit out and not vote. So I guess in the end, this whole push for Biden to be the nominee is probably going to hurt them a little bit. But I, I think the power brokers behind the Democratic Party they were willing to sacrifice a loss to Trump uh, if it did not mean putting Bernie in charge, okay? At least, you know, I think that's, that's like the going theory, was that they would rather have four more years of Trump than Bernie Sanders as a president. Well, now who knows what's going to happen, right? I think there was a really good chance of Trump winning the November election if, if we weren't in some sort of economic catastrophe, recession, depression, whatever you want to call it. Pick one. Okay, so now I guess we have to talk about the virus. Well, all right, to me, the virus itself is not going to be as bad as the government response to the virus. And, well, what do I mean by that? Okay, so I'm looking at today's data, and I just got it off the Internet, okay? So it's March 24th. So take my numbers into, I guess, account that this is what I found on the internet. If you find something different tomorrow, well, then the data has changed, okay? Right now, in the U.S., there's 783 deaths, and there's 54,893 cases. So that gives you a death rate of 1.4%, okay? That's nowhere near what's being, I guess, quoted worldwide at, like, three to four percent or higher and guess what this death rate will continue to come down why because we're testing more okay we're testing more and finding more cases and most people end up with a mild form of the disease right they end up with a fever and a cough and they don't feel good and maybe they're in bed for a few days okay it's the vast minority of the cases who end up in the hospital and have to go to the ICU, okay? The vast minority. And if you put this into perspective, about every year, close to one and a half million people 
die from tuberculosis, okay? I think worldwide right now, there are, what, 18 or 19,000 deaths? And you compare that to 1.5 million that die of TB just about every year? And then look at influenza. Influenza worldwide supposedly kills about 500,000 people. Okay, so how is coronavirus supposed to be this huge Spanish flu-type plague? It's really not, okay? This is a bad thing, yes. Nobody wants to have a new virus going around infecting people and uh, putting people in the ICU and causing deaths. Yes, that part is horrible. But is it the Black Plague? No. Is it the Spanish flu? No. It's not even as deadly as influenza, okay? Let's see what happens, right? Let's not panic. Let's not go crazy. And that's exactly what we're getting from the media, right? And our pol- a lot of politicians, too. If you're a politician who shut down the economy in your state, okay, yeah, you're panicking. I absolutely think this was a huge overreaction to shut down tons of businesses for a virus because most people end up with a mild form of the disease and most people probably don't even know they have it. They come down with a sniffle or something that looks like a cold or a mild flu and that's it. Okay, so I I think it's a huge overreaction, but now the damage is done, right? Basically, most business, I don't know if it's most businesses, but a ton of businesses have been shut down I mean, let's just take one industry in particular. You look at the, let's say, restaurant industry or food industry. The food industry is bigger than the restaurant industry, right? Because it, that encompasses everything that you have to supply the restaurants with, which, which includes like all the farmers and the trucking and everything and the fishing. Okay, so let's not even get there. Let's just talk about the restaurant industry, which is like 15 million employees across the country. 15 million. It's like the single largest Uh, I guess, industry in the nation, if you look at it that way. And if they're all at home, they're all not making money, they're all not buying stuff, restaurants aren't buying things because they're not not generating any revenue, what happens with the reverberations from that? They go to the farmers who are probably still working, but they have nowhere to sell any of their produce. And then what about people in the fishing industry and the meat industry? They have, you know... Their orders have just gone down significantly. I mean, this is going to cause a huge, huge economic, and again, you can pick whatever word you want, collapse, recession, depression. You're going to see corporate profits take the biggest dump you've probably ever seen in your life. And what happens when corporate profits go down? Yes, that's right. People get fired. There are going to be job losses across the country like you've never seen before. This is going to make the 2008 job loss, uh, I guess, record and numbers are just going to pale in comparison. Okay, that's what we have coming. Didn't need to be this way, but the cat's already out of the bag now. It's too late. Okay, we had probably not the best economy coming up until now, right? If you think about it, why did the Fed have to have all this injection of money into the market or into the economy going back to like, what was it, October or uh, even before October, where 
you had this huge increase in the overnight lending. The, the interest rate went up like big time, and then they, they had to inject 50 to 100 billion in just to uh, keep the banks alive. All right. So the, the Fed already started this whole quantitative easing thing probably six months ago. Really, that, that should have never happened if we had such a strong economy. Okay. I'm of the opinion that all bubbles are in search of a pin. Okay. All bubbles are in search of something that's going to pop it. Well, guess what? This virus popped the bubble. And where do we have the bubbles? If you look at the housing industry, okay, uh, house prices are back up to or even in some markets past where they were in 2006 and 2007, right before we had that huge crash. Okay, so we have a housing bubble in many markets. You had a stock bubble where for years companies were just buy or borrowing money at very low interest rates and buying back their own stock with it. So the stock price was going up because these companies were buying back their their own shares as opposed to growing the business and selling more of whatever widget or product they were supposed to be selling. I mean, this low interest rate or near zero interest rate policy of the Fed has done more damage than you can imagine. So where else do we have a bubble? Well, look at the bond market. There's a, an approximately 40-year bubble in the bond market. And what do I mean by that? Well, the interest rates have been dropping in government bonds literally for the past 40 years. Okay? When were they high? They were high in uh, was it the early 80s when Volcker was in charge, when they had to raise interest rates in order to fight off uh, the stagflation from the 1970s, right? So that's the last time interest rates were pretty high on bonds in the United States. But ever since then, they've been coming down. And the trajectory has only been down. There were tiny little blips up here and there along the way. But if you look at a 40-year or 50-year uh, chart, the, the trajectory is down. And now we're at a bottom. Okay, I don't know if our rates in the, in the are possibly they're going to go negative like they have in Europe and Japan. I mean, that's I guess that's possible, but we're right now we're back to zero. Okay, the Fed uh, recently in the past week I think they lowered their or week or two lowered their interest rates down to basically the you know range of zero to uh, twenty five basis points. Okay, all right, we're back to Obama level interest rates, but if the economy was so good. Why did the Fed have to drop everything like that, right? Why are there so many job layoffs if the economy is so good? Right? Shouldn't, be, shouldn't businesses and individuals be saving for a rainy day? Shouldn't they have some cash put aside if everything is going so well? I mean, that would be smart, right? I mean, that, that's kind of common sense stuff that your parents tell you to do. Like, don't spend all your money. Save a little bit for a rainy day because guess what? You never know when it's going to rain or when a virus is going to hit your country and a bunch of politicians are going to shut everything down. Okay, so again, I want to say that I think the government response is going to be worse, basically, than the virus itself. And yeah, I'm not making light of the fact that people are going to die with this virus. That's a bad thing, of course. But what I'm saying is that the repercussions of what the government is going to try to do to I don't know, either save businesses, save jobs, or save the stock market, 
is going to affect us not for one or two years. This is going to affect the country probably for the next decade or two, okay? So what do I think is going to happen? Well, I mean, I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? What's going to happen is what happens every single time. Bailouts, okay? Your government is going to just ask the Fed to print up the money to bail out everyone. Okay, in 2008, Wall Street got bailed out. Not so much for the people on Main Street. Okay, those bailouts never should have happened, but they did. This time, what's going to get bailed out? Well, businesses, the states that are going broke, the workers and the people. I mean, everybody's going to get some money. What's that going to do? Well, eventually it's going to cause a crazy amount of inflation. But first, there's going to be some sort of deflationary collapse. Why? Because nobody's buying anything, right? Nobody's working. Okay, so people have been shut down and people are getting laid off and you're sitting at home with your kids that get kicked out of school and you're just, you know, hopefully you're staying sane and you're continuing their education. But if you have no money coming in, you know, what do you do? You go out and you buy some toilet paper and some food and that's it, right? You're not spending bucks on a new car or expanding your business or remodeling your home or landscaping. I mean, you're cutting all those unnecessary you know, things out that you don't really need. So all this lack of spending, lack of construction, and lack of business activity itself is going to cause significant deflation. Okay, so what does that mean? Prices on everything are going to just plummet. Okay, stock prices, housing prices, price of oil, price of other commodities, wages for people are all going to go down. Okay, initially that's what's going to happen. And initially the dollar is going to remain strong, right? Other countries are going to look to the U.S. dollar as the safe haven that it always used to be and they're going to demand dollars. Okay, initially that's what's going to happen. The dollar is going to strengthen, and then what? Well, then as all this money circulates, and as everybody is getting their bailout bucks, and people are starting to spend again, well, that's going to cause inflation, okay? And then when people who, or other countries, I should say, who um, buy our bonds, our government bonds, they realize that, you know what, we're never ever going to get paid back, are we? Or we're going to get paid back with a dollar that's worth so much less because of all the money printing that it's kind of like a default anyway. And they're going to stop buying the bonds. And that's going to cause the price of the bonds to plummet, right? The interest rates are going to go way up. And that's how bonds work, right? So it's, it's an opposite, right? The, as the interest rates drop, then the price of the bond itself goes up. And as interest rates go up, the price of the bonds go down. Okay, I don't know if you knew that, but now you know. Well, anyway, so as all these other countries and uh, individuals and, let's say, corporations and uh, hedge funds, they as they stop buying U.S. government bonds, right, prices are going to plummet, interest rates are going to go up, and now the government, after it has done whatever sort of multi-trillion multi dollar bailout, they're going to have to start paying interest on some of their bonds, right? Uh, they're still going to have to sell them. Where are they going to sell them? They're going to sell them to the Fed. The Fed's going to buy everything up. The Fed's going to monetize the, the debt directly, but the government can't afford 
to pay the interest on these bonds if the rates go up. If the rates stay at zero to you know 0.25%, well then, yeah, I mean, it's like borrowing for free. But as the rates go up, because other countries aren't buying it, the Fed's not going to be able to hold your interest rates down forever, okay? Interest rates will go up, and the Fed won't be able to keep their rates down. They won't be able to monetize the debt without having a significant amount of inflation, which will keep the economy in a kind of no growth or very slow growth mode, okay? I'm expecting the 1970s stagflation to come back. Okay, I don't know if you lived through the 70s or not. I was a little baby and a kid during the 70s, so I had no idea what it was like. But guess what? My parents did. They know what it was like, and it wasn't fun. Okay, so not to depress you all, I'm going to change the subject slightly, and let's talk about open borders. All right, well, many people gave Trump a hard time for closing travel off to China early on. I mean, it turns out that that was a good move. Okay, I don't think shutting down the whole economy is a good move, but yes, closing off certain travel and travel between certain countries that have a higher infection rate or have some sort of new illness going around, that's not a bad thing. I mean, there are ways to do it without government, but okay, the fact that that was done probably helped us out, okay? Saved us from having more people with disease coming to the states and spreading it around more. Okay, but doesn't this whole idea of now open borders come back into the discussion, right? Because if the Democrats want open borders, okay, that's their platform. They want anybody who wants to come here to come here if they want, and then they want you to pay for it, pay for everything that they need, their uh, education and their health care. Doesn't this whole open borders policy seem just a little scarier now with the virus, okay? That's something for you to think about. Uh, another thing that hasn't really, I guess, come up yet, but you can see how it could become a problem, is this whole idea of martial law, right? Where your government basically can tell you you can't leave your house or you can't go, uh, you can't go to such and such place, you can't travel, that kind of thing. You know, you can't buy certain things like guns and whatever else they want to outlaw, you know, big sodas, according to Mike Bloomberg. Anyway, this whole martial law idea, this is being talked about again on some sites and on some news, uh, news agencies. It's just a little too scary, right? It, it's a little too, what would you say, authoritarian. It's a little too communist. It's a little too Naziist, right? I mean, this, this, these when you think martial law... That's what you think about. You don't think about the United States. So, yeah, it's the government is not supposed to have that sort of power to just shut everything down and quarantine people uh, the way they are. And, I mean, if you think about it, it's just kind of weird, right? Normally, if you're going to have a quarantine, you kind of quarantine the sick people. You don't quarantine the healthy people, right? Because there's hundreds of millions of more healthy people than there are sick. It's much easier to quarantine the sick people. You don't quarantine the healthy people and keep them in their homes and tell them they can't go out and spend their money. I mean, that's just, you're asking to cause a huge depression, right? You're asking to cause uh, at least a recession, at least temporarily, right? 
So yeah, you'll see these discussions about martial law going on, and it's all kind of scary. And, you know, I don't know what states they had a, like a ban on buying new guns. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous. Okay, I mean, you shouldn't be shutting down these businesses in the first place. If people are scared, I mean, that's why they're going out and hoarding toilet paper they don't, because they think the, the virus is so bad and it's, it got played up in the media so much that you're like, oh, I don't want to go to the store and have to buy toilet paper later, so I'm going to buy as much as I can now. And then this easily dovetails into what? Basic economics, price gouging. Okay, so basic supply and demand economics tells us that when the demand for a certain good goes up and the supply hasn't gone up, then guess what? Prices have to go up, okay? As you have your supply and demand curve, and if supply doesn't increase to match the demand, then prices have to go up, okay? Supply and demand doesn't go out the window because of a crisis, okay? Price gouging is actually helpful in a crisis like this, okay? So, Let's, you, let's just run through an example so you don't think I'm crazy. You go to the store to buy toilet paper, and you want to buy a lot because, you know, you're afraid of the virus. And you go and you see toilet paper is, you know, six rolls for two bucks. And so you're like, oh, shit, that's pretty cheap. Well, I'm going to buy as much as I can. I'm going to buy 20, you know, 20 boxes of it, okay? And you clear out the store. And then the person who is working all day and, and gets home a little late is like, oh, I'm going to go buy some toilet paper too. He goes to the store and there's none left. Okay, so how does that work, right? How, how does that help get the supplies into the hands of the people who want it, right? So prices have to go up to reflect the demand. So let's say, all right, let's change the scenario and you let the, the price of a good reflect the the demand of the good and same thing there's a virus going around and you want to go to the store because you're worried and you want to stock up on toilet paper but instead of two dollars for a roll of you know a package of six now it's 20 bucks well some people would call that price gouging but that's actually a good thing right because it this is what happens instead of buying the entire store out you may only buy one and that leaves tons of toilet paper left over for everybody else who needs to get toilet paper. Yes, it costs more. I realize that. Okay. But that increase in the price also sends signals to the companies who produce toilet paper. They're like, hey, the demand for our product has skyrocketed. Now we can go out and produce more. In fact, we can afford to pay our employees extra shifts if they want. We can hire more people and let them work late into the night. We can start a whole night shift thing for the production of toilet paper, which probably never would have existed before. Okay, so yeah, high prices, they do a couple of things. One, they allow everybody to get something in a crisis as opposed to one person or two people being able to buy it all. And they send signals to the producers to guess what? Yes, produce more increase the supply. And then when the supply increases, right, that's when the prices will come back down. A wise man once said, the cure for high prices is high prices, and the cure for low prices is low prices. Okay, so now this kind of dovetails into what Bernie Sanders said about this whole virus test or vaccine. He wants it to be free. Okay, so yes, this is another retarded idea, all right? 
how do you go out and tell a company, let's say some sort of biotech company who might produce the vaccine or produce a, a, a good test for the virus, how do you go out and tell them, yeah, you spend whatever it is, the millions of dollars on creating that vaccine, and then, oh yeah, once the vaccine is produced, you're not allowed to make any money on it, right? Or you're only allowed to break even. By making it free, which is never free, but by, by Bernie Sanders saying it should be free, what's he saying? He, he's basically telling the company, despite all your hard work in trying to produce this vaccine, if you somehow pull it off, you're not going to be able to do well. Okay, We're not going to let you make any money on that. It removes the entire incentive to solve the problem in the first place. right? It, it's actually the opposite of what really should happen. I mean, if there's ever a role for some rich people or a government in a situation like this, is they should tell all these biotech companies, hey, you know what? Whoever produces a safe and effective vaccine, we're going to give you $10 million, right? I mean, it's better spending the 10 or $20 million on that than on a war in the Middle East, Okay, or some rich person like Bloomberg can be like, hey, whoever produces a vaccine that's really good and is effective, I'll give you $10 million myself. I mean, he just spent $600 million on a failed uh, uh, presidential run. Okay, so yeah, there are other ways to do this to solve the problem without taking the incentive out of it. Okay, and that's something that somebody like Bernie Sanders, somebody or, or people like socialists just don't understand. They don't get the whole incentive structure. They just think that companies are going to do this and not make any money on it because it's the right thing to do. Well, you know what? Those companies have to survive too, right? They have to be able to survive past the crisis and continue doing business and whatever they were doing beforehand. They have employees to support they have their investors to be responsible to as well, okay? So, yeah, you can't take the incentive out uh, of doing something and expect anybody to actually do it. Shouldn't we be telling these companies that if they go out and solve the problem, they solve this huge health crisis for us and come up with a cure or a vaccine that you can get rich by doing it? Isn't that the incentive we want? Don't we want as many different companies working on this problem as possible to see who can come up with the best solution. I mean, that's the way you incentivize uh, individuals and a company to fix things. I mean, the government never really fixes anything or solves any problem. They just take money from taxpayers and they shuffle it around to other people that they think can fix the problem. It's individuals who solve the problems. Okay, so I want to mention, I, I read an article uh, it was in early March from the New York Times, and I, I don't know, I, I have kind of this, if you don't know by now, this long-standing hatred of government, and anyway, so New York Times, I mean, it's not known for being an anti-government, I guess, uh, media, right? right? It's basically kind of pro-government in most of the things it wants to do. And I think the New York Times probably supported every war in the past, you know, 30 or 40 years. Anyway, there was an article in the New York Times highlighting the issue uh, where the virus basically first showed up in Washington state, where you had some doctors uh, seeing the virus show up. And despite 
government telling them that they weren't allowed to test for it and they weren't allowed to tell anybody about it, they went ahead and did it anyway because these doctors and researchers thought it was the right thing to do. So yes, you heard me right. They wanted to test for it initially. Okay, going back into, let's say, uh, I think the article said something like early February. They started seeing cases show up. They had the ability to test for it. But every time they talked to government, CDC and the FDA, okay, these are the agencies that are supposed to be protecting us from a virus. Every time they talked to the government, the government told them, no, can't do it. But thank God they went ahead and did it anyway. And guess what? They found positives. They found tons of people with the virus, and they shared that information with the public health department. And even after they shared with that information with public health up in Washington, government told them to stop, but they didn't stop, okay? This is where the sclerosis of government just, I mean, it just shows you that they, they're not really good at responding to threats, okay? They don't know how. They don't know where the next threat's going to come from, so it's... Hard, you can't really prepare for something that you're not, you're not sure what's going to happen, right? Let's say the government now going forward buys 50,000 ventilators and 2 million masks and they stick them all in a warehouse someplace, okay? And we don't get another big, huge viral pandemic in the country for another 50 years. Well, guess what? All those ventilators and all those masks are gone, all right? They're, they've all decomposed, they don't work anymore, technology has changed, all right? So government can try to plan ahead for things, but every time they do it, they'll just screw it up, and they have to take your taxpayer dollars to do that, okay? So what, what's the role, the proper role of government here is to get out of the way, because individuals like these doctors and researchers up in Washington, they identified the threat early on, and they tested for it without government permission and they got it right, okay? Individuals, smart people, okay, from around the country, not the government, they're the ones who are going to figure out the best solution to a problem, okay? And you get a bunch of these smart people together, and they make recommendations to everybody else, to other businesses, to government, and then at that point, you can have some sort of government response, if any, but government shouldn't be preparing for all these types of things that it can't possibly foresee because it'll just screw it up and it's not going to do it right because things change. Okay, one thing I like to say is that maximum efficiency comes with minimum authoritarianism. Okay, the private market, the decentralization of the private market allows the smart and productive people to operate, to prosper, and succeed. These are the problem solvers, right? With authoritarianism, yeah, you know, if you're a communist country and you, you can get stuff done, but you get, you're getting stuff done at the barrel of a gun. And if people don't follow along with whatever dictate you think you're supposed to be, you know, issuing at the time, well, then they'll probably either kill you or throw you in a jail, right? Would you want to live under something like that? Historically, this type of level of an authoritarian state has allowed terrible evils to occur. I'm talking hundreds of millions of dead. Okay, that, that's basically what socialism has done throughout history, is they take away your rights, take away your freedoms, and hundreds of millions of people die. Those are your two extremes, right? 
let the private market and decentralization fix the problem, or you have a complete authoritarian state who can do stuff quickly, but most of the time they're going to do the wrong thing. Can some sort of hybrid work? Well, yeah, that's kind of what we have now. We don't have complete authoritarianism or complete laissez-faire, let the private sector fix everything situation. But the more and more you move towards authoritarianism and towards government being the solution to the problems, the worse things will be. And the less, uh, the less problems will get solved efficiently and the more chance you have of government stepping in to try to take over a situation and screwing things up and causing more problems than they are trying to fix in the first place. Remember, every government intervention generally requires further government interventions to fix the problems they caused initially. Okay, one other thing I want to talk about was, I guess in the whole bailout section, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, was that I don't know when, I think Mitt Romney and a bunch of other politicians talked about giving $1,000 a month to people. I mean, this was like Andrew Chang's idea, um, but th this is not new. I mean, this has been around for a long time. This whole sprinkle money on the masses, this helicopter money thing. I mean, th I think the helicopter money issue, I forget its first uh, appearance in history. It was probably with Milton Friedman, if I remember correctly. And I think he used the example of hel helicopter money as a joke. I forget the exact conversation he was having or involved in, but I think he said, yeah, you could just have the government drop money from helicopters, but I think he was saying it as a joke, like it was actually a horrible idea, which it would be, right? Because all of a sudden, let's say you wake up tomorrow, everybody's got a million bucks. Well, what's that going to do? Well, a million bucks extra chasing after the same number of goods and services in the country is just going to drive prices up, right? Because it's not like you can go out and buy a new car for the same price, right? Let's say the car, a car you're looking at costs $25,000, but guess what? It's not just you that has the million bucks, right? It's your neighbor, and your neighbor's neighbor, and everybody else in the neighborhood has the extra million bucks. So what's going to happen to that $25,000 car that you want to buy? Well, everybody's going to want to buy that car, right, if they need a new car. It's just going to drive the prices up of goods and services for everyone that gets distributed this extra money, right? This, this whole universal basic income thing is a horrible idea. This, this it's helicopter money. It's the same thing. It's only going to cause inflation. And it's so the prices of all goods that you want and services that everybody wants, right? So the prices of all those things are going to go up. And guess who that's going to hurt the most? Oh yeah, the poor people. Okay. Because the rich people don't care how much things cost because they're rich. So the poor people care about whether a six-pack of soda costs five bucks or it costs 30 bucks, okay? Okay, so some of my closing thoughts. When you're thinking about the bailouts and all the money that the government right now is proposing to spend on, you know, giving to companies and the, the states and individuals, I mean, if this actually worked, right, if this money printing actually worked and led to prosperity and it actually worked to prop up failing businesses, well, then why have they ever let businesses fail before, right? If it was such a good idea to 
give money out to all these businesses who didn't decide to save for a rainy day or they didn't have the ability to weather some sort of a storm, well then, why would you have ever have let businesses fail before if it was such a great idea, right? That's the whole idea of capitalism and creative destruction, right? The businesses that anticipate the needs of consumers and continue to make people happy with higher quality products at low prices, they're going to do well, right? Those are the ones that survive, and the companies that can't satisfy consumers, those are the ones that go out of business, okay? And the other thing you should think about when you're, you see how much money the government's going to spend on these bailouts, well, think about if money printing actually worked, then why hasn't every government on the planet just done it? And why, why aren't we all just rich? I mean, if your government can just print the money and give it to everybody and everybody would be happy and you wouldn't need anything because the government provided it for you or they give you the money to just buy whatever you needed, why hasn't that ever worked before? Why hasn't anybody ever thought of that before? Well, in fact, it's been tried several times and it's never worked. And all those countries did when they tried it was they caused hyperinflation I mean, you can look all that up on the internet about which countries tried hyperinflation and the catastrophe that led to. Uh, some of the better known examples are in Zimbabwe and in, uh, in Germany, I think, in the 1920s. Or you can look at modern-day Venezuela. Okay, so one of the last things I want to leave you with is don't panic over the virus. I honestly think in the next couple of weeks to a month, we're going to see a significant, I guess, flattening of the curve is what people are saying, which just means you're not going to see as many cases or as many deaths popping up. So eventually, you know, right now, if you look at the uh, pandemic or outbreak or whatever you want to call it, it where if it's in a following a bell-shaped curve, we're still on that upward slope of the bell, okay? And it's probably going to take at least a couple more weeks or more for us to kind of hit that plateau, and then after we hit the plateau, we're going to start coming down. And you're going to see less and less cases per month, less and less cases uh, or, or deaths per month. So, yeah, I, we're still on the upward slope. Don't be surprised if you see a couple thousand new cases every couple of days. Uh, that's to, to me, that's to be expected. But again, most of the people who get tested are going to have either no symptoms or very mild symptoms. And only very few people, I think, overall are going to die. And I think the death rate is going to continue to go down, okay? That makes sense. Where the denominator gets bigger and the number of deaths kind of goes up slowly, but you're testing more and more negative people that, or more and more, not negative people, if you're testing more and more people who have mild symptoms and aren't going to die, well, yes, then the death rate has to go down. One last thing on the virus I want to tell you guys about is I think the news agencies that are comparing us to Italy are really doing everybody a disservice here, okay? So the problem with Italy was that they are one of the oldest populations on average in the world, okay? I think the average age of death for their citizens with coronavirus was like 81, and I think Japan was probably... Maybe it's the only other older population on average in the world. So, yeah, that's what you have going in. You have an average older population with, however, a lot of underlying 
illness. Okay, smoking in Italy is prevalent, uh, certainly amongst the older generations, right? They smoked for years, and who knows if they're still smoking now, but they already did damage to their lungs years ago, and that damage is permanent. That stays there forever. So if you get hit with a respiratory illness on top of your COPD or emphysema or whatever damage you already did to your lungs, well then, yeah, you're going to be more affected by this virus than others. Okay, the Italians also have, everybody knows, a, a way of greeting each other where they kiss each other on the cheeks, right? Okay, so that probably contributed also to the disease spreading more widely and quickly than it otherwise would have. And Italy has nowhere near the capacity that we have in our ERs, in our hospitals, in our ICUs that could have hoped to deal with an immediate surge of this viral outbreak, okay? That's why America is going to do better. That's why our death rate is going to be much lower than that in Italy. Um, from my understanding, as well in uh, Italy, not everybody goes to their primary care doc, right? They end up going to the ER when they get really sick. And so you had a whole bunch of people showing up to the ER at once, and that flooded their system and caused rationing right away. And we're not going to have that same problem here. I just don't see it happening. I know what our ERs look like, having, you know, worked with one for the past at least, I don't know, 15 years or so. I know what their capacity is like. They, uh, my little rinky-dink hospital went out of their way to increase the number of uh, ICU beds that they have. They expanded the ER. They, they isolate uh, patients better because they've been doing that for years and they're really good at it, right? Any patient that comes into the ER suspected of some sort of airborne illness, something like TB, they get isolated. So our ERs are used to doing that. They already have protocols set up for that. And I'm not sure the Italian hospitals have such a mechanism in place or such a well-thought-out mechanism. Yeah, they do have isolation beds, of course, but maybe not so many, okay? And maybe they can't respond on the scale that we can. So that's why I think we're going to weather the storm for those reasons better than Italy has. Okay, so the last thing I'm going to leave you with is one of my favorite sayings, and you should kind of keep this in the back of your mind all the time when you're thinking about government. Government likes to break your leg and then they give you a crutch. And then they like to go around on TV and say, see, we helped you walk. But obviously, what a lot of people fail to see was that they broke your leg in the first place. Okay, guys, thank you for listening. And let's remember to keep those fires of liberty burning bright. Yeah.